Good morning to you, and if it's not too late in the year, a happy new year to you. I hope all your resolutions are going very well. One of mine was to finish what I started. So far I've finished a chocolate cake, a packet of biscuits. There's a certain irony, isn't there? We've been singing about someone who is just beautiful and wonderful, who is full of grace, who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but according to his mercy and grace. His mercy and love is new every morning. So you would have thought that that message would have been embraced by everyone who heard it, in which case you would be wrong. We're reading from Acts chapter 4, which is where you've got to in your studies in the book of Acts. And uh, it follows chapter 3, of course, and it follows the narrative of chapter 3. And you'll know what happened in chapter 3, because you've already looked at it. There's um, a simple thing, you never know what a day will entail. Do you have, I guess most of us keep diaries or calendars. I did know of a vicar years and years ago who didn't keep a calendar or a diary but knew in his head what he had on every day of the week. I can't manage that with a diary or a calendar. But anyway, most of us have that. Perhaps you've got things in your diary for this coming week so you know some of the things that are planned for this week. But I'm guessing that there's going to be things that will catch you by surprise if it's an average sort of week. Um, maybe just domestic things for yourself or something external. You never know what a day will bring forth, do you? Peter and John, in chapter 3, just go up, as their habit is, to praise the Lord at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the temple. Why wouldn't they go to the temple? They go, all the other Jews, to praise the God of their fathers and to delight in the God who sent Jesus Christ. But it leads them to walk past a guy who says, have you got anything for me? No, they haven't, says Peter. But I tell you what, I'll give you what you have. Get up and walk, he's prompted by the Spirit. And a miracle happens. Just passing by, someone who's sitting in a familiar place. How many times have they walked by that guy before? It just happened that day, God prompts them to say, this is what I want to do in his life. And a miracle happens. And the guy's life is transformed. It's wonderful, isn't it? And everyone else is absolutely staggered all around at what has happened on an ordinary day, in an ordinary place. I know the temple is a special place, but no one was expecting that to happen. And suddenly they are presented with an extraordinary outpouring of God's grace and love. So they start talking about it, and immediately Peter says, what are you looking like me, that me for? Do you think I did it? No. And then he explains what's happened and the power by which it happened, and puts them right, and says this is what we always believed would happen. But God promised this to Abraham. Well, it's happening now in our day. And we're looking for the time when God will complete it. Well, of course, a lot of people are really impressed by that and taken by that, but not some. Not some. The priests, oh, here we go. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. 
But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to be about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. What Luke is doing is giving us a second stage of the journey from the birth of Jesus to the time of Paul in Rome. He's doing what Jesus continued to do in the church. And you find lots of parallels between the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Often what Luke says is gives you a summary statement like Jesus did loads of miracles. Then he picks one miracle and tells us about that and then explains what that miracle is all about. He does that, for example, in chapter 5 of Luke. And you find that's happening here. In chapter 2, he just said about all the things that have been happening, a little summary total, and then he gives us one healing that happens, a specific one, and then explains all that is involved in that, which is still going on. <clears throat> you never know what a day may bring. Jesus said, follow me. So the task of being a Christian is following Jesus. You never quite know where that's going to take you or what it will involve. Sometimes it's into predictable places, but not always. Paul says, we are to make the most of every opportunity. And opportunities come in two guises, unexpected and expected. It could be, for example, that in your diary you are going to meet someone. 
We heard this last week of a, a lady who works from home, but in order not to cut off from social intercourse, as it were, and to be engaging with people as a Christian, she goes out every particular morning of the one morning of the week to a particular coffee shop and meets with people there. Over the years, that little group has grown. Apparently, it also includes a local MP, which is extraordinary. But I just thought that's such a creative thing to do, isn't it? When you spend all your time at home and you deliberately go out and establish this sort of hour in the morning on one day a week where you generate the opportunity for, for um, uh, an opportunity to take for Christ. Anyway, this encounter, I suppose you could say, is both unexpected and expected. It's expected because Jesus said to his disciples, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have encounters with the ruling classes that you won't like. So, in a sense, they were expecting that to happen at some point or other. But they didn't know when or where or how it would happen. So it was unexpected to that extent. So a simple act of going to do something normal has generated not only a wonderful outpouring of God's grace, but the opportunity to speak for God and opportunity to be confronted with those who don't believe it. Why don't they believe it? What is the big problem with the priests and the leaders of the people and the elders and the rulers and the teachers of the law and the Sadducees? What is their problem? Why can't they get the message? This is what they've been longing for. Through so many years, what is their problem? This is the problem. Verse 2. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. We can miss the significance of the way that's been written. And we assume that everyone believed in resurrection. Often the critics of Jesus' resurrection say, well, everyone believed in resurrection, so all the disciples put together this cock and bull story and off he went. Nobody believed in resurrection when Jesus was raised from the dead. Jewish people believed that at the end of time, all the Jewish people, apart from anything else, would be raised together in one lump and something new would happen. They believed that, but nobody in any other religion, no pagan believed in resurrection. And what's happening here is it's not just they're simply saying, Jesus, you crucified, has been raised to life. That is the resurrection. And his resurrection guarantees ours, of course. They are proclaiming that. But that's not all they're proclaiming. They're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So if you go back to chapter 3, and verse 21... Heaven must receive him, Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. If you look at the trajectory of the Old Testament, it's all going in one way. God is going to do something to put everything right. One day, God is going to put this whole world to rights. It comes in all sorts of ways and it's expressed in all sorts of ways often in language that the Israelites would understand particularly, but it was looking to a putting right of everything that's wrong. Everyone in the world knows the world is not as it should be. Nobody in the world would think this is as the world should be. Surely they don't. It is too full of violence and hatred and suffering. Everyone thinks there's something wrong. 
Well, as, as Christians, we believe that God has got a day when he's going to put everything to rights. But here's the thing. In Jesus, that has begun. So if you look at the book of John, for example, and John chapter 20, you find the resurrection of Jesus is spoken of in languages of new creation, a new beginning. It's already started. So the book of Acts opens with the apostles being filled with the Spirit and sent on this task, equipped with the Spirit, to usher in, as it were, the kingdom of God, to explain the kingdom of God has already arrived here and now. And it's begun to happen. So Peter, when he's asked to explain, as it were, why this man gets healed, he says, nothing to do with us. It's because of Jesus and belief in his name that these things can happen. It's not that everyone here and now is going to be healed, but that God has begun the process by which he's putting everything right. And all those who believe in Jesus, all those who follow <coughs> Jesus, are those who are looking for that time and expecting those things to happen now. Now the theologians call this the already and the not yet. We already have the kingdom of God, but it's not yet here in all its fullness. So we already have demonstrations of God healing power, but not yet healing everyone of everything all the time. It's a bit of a mixture, which can confuse us. But the thing is, you've got two parallel worlds, as it were, running at the same time. You've got the kingdom of this earth and the kingdom of God. And the one is involved in the other. And God, Jesus said it's like yeast in bread. I don't make bread, but if you just put the flour and all the other things together with no yeast and put it as a lump, you can put it where you like, nothing's going to happen to it, it's just going to go solid. But if you put yeast in it, a small amount of yeast, it will in fact affect the entire dough and transform it. Jesus said, the kingdom of God may look small now, but it can transform everything. And that's what's happening in the healing of that man. His life has been transformed. From now on, everyone who knows him will never be the same. They have to make a decision about it. Did it or not happen? And everyone who knew him knows it's happened. So what are they going to do about it? His life transformed their lives. And that can transform the community. Transforming the community can actually transform a nation. And a nation can transform the world. So it can have the same effect. It's already happening. Now, if you're someone whose power base gives you the right to th throw your weight around and dominate other people, then you will be threatened by the fact that God is doing something that has nothing to do with you. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. And they're focus of attention was the temple. Now the temple was the most important building in Jewry. The place where God said, I will let my name dwell there. That's the place where I will meet you. God didn't live in the temple. Earth is not big enough for his footstool, let alone the temple for him to live in. But he graciously said he would meet with his people there. Well that's their sphere of influence. They dominate it. You get the read? The rulers, the elders, the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander. These are the intellectual heavyweights. These are the, these are the spiritual great guys. They've grabbed power and held it to themselves. For the hundred years 
in which this event is happening. And 100 years around it, there were 28 high priests and they came from one of four families. It's extraordinary. They have grabbed the power and they're holding on to the power. More than that, of course, the temple is where the sacrifices are made, where God said this is the way whereby we can be reconciled, we can live in harmony. So they've got the power. Now, when Jesus comes along, he stands in the temple and he says, destroy this place and I will raise it in three days. And they think, what? This temple? Of course, he's not talking about the building. He knows that this temple that he's standing in is about to become obsolete because it has pointed towards him. He is the final climax of the Jewish story. So he stands as the temple, the meeting place between God and men. Now how much the Sadducees knew about that, I'm not sure. But they certainly saw him as a kind of dismissing the temple. When he threw them out of the temple and overturned the money chains, it wasn't that he was complaining about them taking money for buying pigs and all, not pigs, um, um, sheep and all the other things to sacrifice. That was standard practice. What he did was for a moment bring the whole sacrificial system to a halt. He rendered the temple at that point completely useless. It was a statement that the day was coming when the temple would be useless, obsolete, overrun. Now whatever else they understood, the Sadducees and the Pharisees understood that he was a threat to their power base and they, so they got rid of him. Now what's happening now in Jesus, the apostles are saying, what God begun in Jesus, he is continuing in us. This is a great threat to their power base. They're saying God has begun it, he's continuing it. Now who is threatened by that? Well, in Jesus' day, of course, and in the Apostles' day, it was the religious folk. The Romans couldn't care less one way or the other, basically. Nor could the pagans, basically. The messages are going to go out, and many of them are going to become Christians. But it's not so much the pagan societies having a problem with this, it's actually the Jewish powerful spiritual leaders who have a problem because they see their power base disappearing. If the temple is disappearing and the sacrificial system is disappearing because now you follow Jesus, everything that God is doing is in Jesus, not in the temple. And there's one sacrifice by which you can be saved and only one, not the other Levitical sacrifices. Then suddenly, where's your power gone? And that's what threatened them. That's why they were really cross about Peter and John doing this. That's why they called them to account. They said, tell us why you do these things. They can't deny the miracle, but they're going to have hassle with it. So that's what this problem's all about. And Peter has this wonderful um, statement, isn't it? The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, is Jesus. He's the stone. And we have to remember, the people he spoke to knew their scriptures and knew about stones. And stones were something that Daniel had spoken about, saying the day was coming, one stone carved out of a mountain, not by human hands, will come and crush all the empires that would fill Daniel's day and every day since then, and would rise up to become a kingdom that would have no equal, that would last forever. It's a statement of intent, and they're threatening. Now the way people keep power is usually by threat and force, and of course, the moment you introduce resurrection and say, if you die, then God will raise you to life again for eternity, then you take away the effect of that threat, don't you? 
So believers then are not threatened by these powerful people. So Peter and John can stand there bold and courageous, filled with the Spirit, saying, well, you make up your mind about what you're going to do, but we're going to have to keep speaking about God. We have no choice but to speak about God. It's a wonderful story, isn't it? But the people in our day, in our society, it's not so much, it may be certain rulers uh, in spiritual terms, but I guess it's more to do with our society as a whole, who say, don't talk to us about religion, don't talk to us about spiritual things, don't talk to us about one exclusive saviour. We won't allow you to do that, keep back. That's where our hassle's going to come from. That's where we have to explain ourselves. But this week, whatever you've got involved, whatever's coming your way, will provide you with opportunities just to be the minister of God, just around that point, looking out for opportunities. When King George VI gave his Christmas message in 1939, interestingly, he included this, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than light and safer than a known way. As we enter into this year, my friends, it's not that God would show a light for us, as it were, and let us go on our own. Our task is to put our hand in the hand of God, to follow Jesus, wherever he may lead us, because that's safer than a known way. Will you let me tell you a little story, an animal love story, but I just think this is a beautiful little story that speaks so much about what it is to be a believer, what it is to be someone who makes the most of any opportunity. One bishop is well known for saying, uh, in describing succinctly what a Christian is, he simply said this, a Christian is one beggar showing another beggar where they can find bread. Isn't that true? Our lives have been touched by a God of grace who's changed us. And all we want to do is help another person find the same God and the same grace. Isn't that right? Whatever opportunities may have. Police in Warwickshire opened a garden shed and found a whimpering, cowering dog. The dog had been locked in the shed and abandoned. It was dirty and malnourished and had quite clearly been abused. In an act of kindness, the police took the dog, which was a female greyhound, to the Nuneaton Warwickshire Wildlife Sanctuary, which is run by a man named Jeff Grucock, and known as a haven for animals abandoned, orphaned, or otherwise in need. Jeff and the other sanctuary staff went to work with two aims, to restore the dog to full health and to win her trust. It took several weeks, but eventually both goals were achieved. They named her Jasmine, and they started to think about finding her an adoptive home. Jasmine, however, had other ideas. No one quite remembers how it came about, but Jasmine started welcoming all animal arrivals at the sanctuary. It would not matter if it were a puppy, a fox cub, a rabbit or any other lost or hurting animal, Jasmine would just peer into the box or cage and, when and where possible, deliver a welcoming lick. Jeff relates one of the early incidents. We had two puppies that had been abandoned by a nearby railway line. One was a Lakeland Terrier cross and the other a Jack Russell Doberman cross. 
They were tiny when they arrived at the centre and Jasmine approached them and grabbed one by the scruff of the neck in her mouth and put him on the settee and then she fetched the other ones and sat down with them, cuddling them. But she is like that with all of our animals, even the rabbits. She takes all the stress out of them and it helps them to not only feel close to her but to settle into their new surroundings. She has done the same with the fox and badger cubs. She licks the rabbits and guinea pigs and even lets the birds perch on the bridge of her nose. Jasmine, the timid, abused, deserted waif, became the animal sanctuary's resident surrogate mother, a role for which she might have been born. The list of orphaned and abandoned youngsters she has cared for comprises five fox cubs, four badger cubs, 15 chicks, eight guinea pigs, two stray puppies and 15 rabbits, and one roe deer fawn. Tiny Bramble, 11 weeks old, was found semi-conscious in a field. Upon arrival at the sanctuary, Jasmine cuddled up to her to keep her warm and then went into full foster mum role. Jasmine the greyhound showers Bramble the roe deer with affection and makes sure nothing is the matter. They are inseparable, says Jeff. Bramble walks between her legs and they keep kissing each other. They walk around the sanctuary together. It's a real treat to see them. Jasmine will continue to care for Bramble until she's old enough to be returned to woodland life. When that happens, Jasmine will not be lonely. She will be too busy showering love and affection on the next orphan or victim of abuse. Isn't that a lovely story? I thought it was so indicative of what we're all about. Because often the thing that can frustrate us being on offer, as it were, to God is a feeling that we're not trained enough or not experienced enough or our story isn't powerful enough or we don't have all the answers and things. And here's one dog just being rescued who offers a simple comfort to other dogs who are in the same sort of situation. So I wonder what you're going to be facing this coming week or month or what might happen this year. I want to encourage you as you follow Jesus, as you make the most of every opportunity as Paul encouraged us to, as you are filled with the Spirit, as you let the Word of God dwell richly in your heart, you may simply be on the lookout to give to others what you yourself have received. Paul will write about the God of comfort, that we ourselves can offer the comfort that we have received from God. That's basically what it's all about, isn't it? And many of you are really, really good at that. Often it's not the words initially that help, it's the actions that people express, isn't it? So many of you are really good at that. Let me encourage you. The time may come for explaining to people what might happen, but sometimes God will just put us in a place where something needs to be done and we do it, and who knows what can come from that. So, Father, I pray, as we enter into a year that may well be similar to last year and not too much different from the year to come, we know, Lord, that as we follow you, anything can happen. And that we will make connections with all manner of different people, even this week. Some of them will be our dear friends and family. Some of them neighbours and colleagues. And others complete strangers. But Father, we want to ask that you would fill us with yourself. And fill us with your goodness. That then we have the opportunity, in our way, according to our gifts and abilities and our 
our character, that we can offer some of that goodness to another in a way that really can touch their lives. It's not for us to sort people's lives out. That's for you to do, Lord. But it is for us to be available to make the most of every opportunity. So will you take the stress away from worry and fear about what that might be and instead replace it, Lord, with an overflowing gratitude to you for all you've done in our lives and for a willingness to share some of that with others as you give us opportunity. And this not for our sake, Lord, and not even for their sake, but for your sake. That you can see all that you've done and see what's happening in your world as a result. That you might get the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.